Hello, everybody, and very welcome back to Back to Young podcast. Uh, we've had a little hiatus because um, I've been very busy um, and I have been in search of guests, and I am very pleased to welcome Megan Van Castile um, to talk to us today about idiopathic scoliosis. Um, Megan, if I give you a little introduction on your current roles, which are a plenty. Um, you are CPO at Align Clinic, um, and you're also an assistant professor at the Baylor College of Medicine. And you're also the founder of the Scolios Us. Did I get that right? Close. Got it right. <laughs> yeah. um, so we're going to talk about like all your roles as well, but uh, a very warm welcome, and thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. You can blame Ben for for making for giving me your email address. <laughs> but, I will have to thank Ben. <laughs> thank Ben. Yeah, thank. That's the word. Thank Ben for for the introduction. And um, so I think just like it's always interesting just to start with a little bit about your your background and how you became a, a CPO. Um, so we start there, and then we'll 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 kind of dive into the idiopathic scoliosis part afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. So I was a gymnast growing up, had lots of orthopedic injuries. So I knew I wanted to do something in orthopedics, but wasn't exactly sure what. So I actually thought I was going to go the PA route and started working in a hospital, quickly realized that no, 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 that was not for me. So I kid you not, I actually Googled careers in orthopedics. And orthotics and prosthetics came up and I got into shadow that next week and everything just kind of clicked. So I just ran with it and here we are. Cool. So how long have you been practicing? As a oh goodness, let's see. I guess about five years now. Cool. And that so you've been pretty busy in five years then to uh to have all those roles and, and have developed a speciality in idiopathic scoliosis. <laughs> Yes, yes, I have. It feels like a long time, but then when I look back, it really hasn't been that long. No. Um, but yeah, I had just some amazing opportunities kind of fall into my lap a little bit. And so I, I'm very fortunate to be in the position that I'm in. And so in terms of gaining this specialist interest so like quickly, how did how did that come around? Was that was that based on where you were and what you saw, or was there another another story behind that? Yeah, so everybody always assumes that I have scoliosis myself, and I actually oh. do not. So is then it's like, the okay. Or... <laughs> uh, no, I think just because this has become like my whole career journey sort okay. of thing. So I think everybody kind of naturally assumes that that's how I actually got into the field, but it is not. So scoliosis was actually one of the first topics that we covered when I went through the Baylor program. So this was back in 2016. And I remember uh, Josh Dute was my professor at the time, and he was going through the slides and we were talking about how patients are supposed to wear their braces for 23 hours a day. And then we clicked and we went to the next slide and I think the wheels in my head really just started spinning. And I think it was my background as a gymnast, but then also coaching gymnastics for about six years. Mm -hmm. I coached girls from ages, let's say five, all the way up until about 16. So really that population that we're working with was scoliosis. And so I think I immediately thought about them and just like the struggles that I was able to observe in coaching them. And then translating that over to being wrapped in a giant piece of plastic for 23 hours a day. So surely it was the psychological side that I think kind of drew me in at first. 
But then the more and more I learned about it clinically, I think I saw how much of a challenge it really is from a biomechanical standpoint. And just the fact that we don't know why idiopathic scoliosis happens still. Yeah. We're, I think, getting closer to figuring it out, but we still don't really know why it's happening. And so I think it's just challenging from both the patient population side of things, but also from the clinical perspective. And I love challenges. So it drew me in. And I think it's probably one of, if not the only area where we can, we have an actual objective marker at the start and we have one at the end that we measure and we can say, yes, yes. this has, uh, like from the articles I've read of yours, like you have a percentage change and then there's like percentage that you start at and then you monitor where that goes and that kind of, you know, is very significant whether that person ends up in surgery or not. Um, whereas like a lot of the other orthoses that we prescribe are a little bit more subjective in terms of the outcomes uh, that we, we kind of uh, view or visualize uh, or the patient reports back to us. So I think that's, because I think I had this conversation with, uh, with Ben perhaps, or, and, and I saw him talking about, and Drew as well, uh, Drew Mayer, like about, is it Will Slaw uh, and like bone uh, kind of uh, like changing the, position of bone and so it's, it's a it is interesting to see like you know what what happens in scoliosis and then can we apply that to anything else in orthopedics so it's uh sorry i've digressed yeah. already so um, no i think you bring up a good point because we are lucky in that we actually have like objective outcomes that we're able to look at and that we collect on a normal basis. I think with other devices that we're providing an ONP, we are actively having to go out and collect these outcome measures, whether they're just surveys or actual mm -hmm. tests that we're performing with these patients. But with Scully, we really have it all kind of presented for yeah. us, which makes it very nice. And it's and it's um and it's interesting like like how it's ended up where scoliosis is treated in that kind of more serious way. Or not sorry i'm just closing the door i had we had a little visitor there so <laughs> uh, um, yeah i i think that it's definitely an area that is proms or patient reported outcome measures um are kind of pushed for a lot of the other areas whereas the the objective data that we get to, to quantify results in scoliosis is you know you don't you never think about it as oh it's going to be subjective and we'll just see how they get on um and and in terms of like your role in at um, Align Clinic, are you mainly treating scoliosis or do you treat uh, everything and that's just part of your caseload? Yeah, so at this point, I would say Scoli is about 95% actually of what I see. The other 5% is just kind of whoever walks in the door, AFOs, SMOs, FOs, whatever the case may be, but definitely the vast majority of what I see is Scoli and for the most part, idiopathic Scoli. I do have some adult patients and then some neuromuscular patients as well, but most of them are, are idiopathic cases. And then with your uh, assistant professor role of Baylor, are you, is that scoliosis based? Not necessarily. So I do teach all of the scoliosis content, but I also te teach our upper limb orthotics course and then kind of just help out in the lab with all the lab skills and projects that are going on. So that is like more of the didactic side of the role, but then also doing some research. And my research is geared towards scoliosis. It kind of blends all my worlds together a little bit. Yeah, that's, I think I, that's a nice blend then of kind of having the, 
the clinic side is maximized with your scoliosis and then you're able to kind of be uh, educating everybody uh, at Baylor as well and, and, and kind of what, what you're currently doing as well, which is sometimes you don't always get that blend when people are clinical and um, teaching. It can be one or the other and then you know how, how far removed are you from real life if you've been teaching for like 20 years and not actually been in clinic. Yeah. Um, and then I guess like we we talked about this briefly before I before we started, but my scoliosis knowledge is limited because it's not something that I have um, done a lot in clinical practice. But um, if you're going to describe scoliosis, then how how do you where do you start in terms of idiopathic scoliosis? Yeah, so textbook speaking, scoliosis is the lateral curvature of the spine of more than ten degrees. But I think that definition is a little bit misleading because it's not just the sideways curving of the spine. There is also a rotational component, which is how we normally detect scoliosis. So a lot of times with that rotation, you'll also see some postural imbalances develop. And so truly, when we're treating scoliosis, we need to treat all of those different things, not just the sideways curving, but also that rotation, that posture change, all of those. And that's where the this is, and then this is where my knowledge is either still current or out of date where you would when you have the and it's usually adolescents dominantly female right. is that right would it be primarily female so for smaller curves there's actually a pretty even split between male and females okay but we find that females actually have a tendency to have larger curves and curves that just kind of like keep going on us and need treatment so in terms of bracing oh I think the latest numbers that I saw is actually a seven to one female to male ratio there. And and then the, the test, like the classic test that they used to do at like schools and things was like the, the forward bending test. Then you look exactly. and you'd see that and it's then the rotation that shows itself. Um, exactly. and, and, is, and is that still the, the kind of go-to way to, to find the initial possible scoliosis? It is. So a lot of my patients will kind of get it detected by the school nurses. So then they end up going to the pediatrician and then to the orthopedic. The other big thing that I find is actually during summertime, when the kids are in bathing suits, that's when the parents sometimes will pick up on it because they'll see either the rotation or sometimes you'll see like the hips become uneven or the shoulders get uneven, some sort of asymmetry developing. And so that's when kind of the red flags go off in their head and they'll take them in. Other times I've had just like very random discoveries where someone went in for a chest x-ray for pneumonia and then turns out they also had scoliosis. So right. they've made their way to my office. But I would <laughs> say like summertime and the school checks are, are the two most common. And and from there then, what's the, the typical, because you mentioned it briefly, that the typical pathway, like the, the school nurse picks it up, and this is obviously um, your US experience, but and then, so they say, okay, right, we think you might have a scoliosis, they then go where? So normally if the school nurse picks up on it, they'll send them over to the pediatrician. And sometimes, I forgot to mention, the pediatricians will also do like their annual checks whenever they see kids in. So sometimes they're the ones who are actually detecting it as well. So once the pediatrician sees them and thinks that they might have scoliosis, then they'll go ahead and send them over to an orthopedic. And the orthopedic will be the one who actually takes the x-rays and confirms the diagnosis. And it's making me think now, like, does that, do we still get those checks in our schools here? Because I've got two, two young girls, so it's like, 
I wonder if that still happens. I'll definitely need to check check that out uh, next week. Do we do we do checks on the on the girls at school or the kids mm-hmm. at school? Um, and and then well, from something there, something that's interesting. Oh, sorry to cut you off, but something that's interesting, and I I am not exactly sure when they do the school checks, but what I'm seeing in clinic is that a lot of girls seem to be hitting puberty a little bit younger. So these curves are developing a little bit younger than what I think we've seen in the past. And so I think sometimes by the time the check comes, they're actually like way past the point of when they probably should have been checked. So that's something that, yeah, I don't know who makes those decisions. If that's like the national nursing board or or who, I'm not sure. A lot of things can be historical though, can't they? Like the things that people check for and like the methods they use are, that's why I was saying, like, is it still that best? Is like because things are just done, and sometimes they just stay that way for many years, and then until someone challenges it and says, "Is that is that the best way?" And um, so then, exactly. in terms of like what happens in the details of like the numbers that they they're they're obviously monitored. If that first X-ray from the orthopedic doctor is um say ten degrees, what what do they then uh, what what happens then? Yeah, so typically curves that are under, I would say, 20 to 25 degrees are just going to be observed by the doctor. So normally they'll see them back every six months or so, do an out-of-brace x-ray. Well, of course, out-of-brace, they're not braced at this point. Uh, But they'll do an x-ray, see how everything is looking. If they see progression over that 20, 25 degree mark, then that would be an indication that they might need to go ahead and start bracing. So typically I'll start seeing those patients around then. Of course, if it's bigger than that, if we're already in the 30s, then they'll definitely refer them my way. So typically we'll brace, I would say, between like 20 and 50 is definitely on the high end. Mm -hmm. Well, we can brace those curves over 50 degrees. That's a pretty clear indication that surgery is needed in order to stop this curve from progressing. And and then again, my limited knowledge, but the, is it kind of, you said six month intervals between x-rays, but my, from what I'm thinking is that you can sometimes just, they can be somewhere and then all of a sudden they just increase rapidly and it, it kind of happens very quickly. Is that true or is that not, is it, it, is it can. a can. It can. And it really depends on where the kids are in their growth. So most kids will have like a big growth spurt around age eight. And then really like right before starting puberty, that's when they start to like quote unquote grow like a weed. And so it's in those really rapid growth spurts where we see those curves tend to get bigger. If a kid is in that really rapid growth spurt and say they're at like 15 degrees, the doctor might see them back every four months instead of every six months to just keep a little bit of a closer eye. But what I like to assure parents is that scoliosis doesn't change over like days and really weeks. It really changes over months. So typically we're not going to see like a 25 degree increase in a matter of six months. We might see if a curve is really rapidly progressing, I would say we might see a 10 degree increase and that would be okay. Kind of that red flag let's go ahead and we need mm-hmm. to actually intervene and do something orthotically or with physical therapy whatever the case may be um and get going there but my assumption then from what we're discussing uh is that obviously the growth spurts are influencing the scoliosis or they can but then from from my experience it's like how do you predict a growth spurt or how do you know when someone's in one it's like that the slight kind of like it's one of those things that you think oh we've had a growth spurt because like when my kids grow up, like, oh, their clothes are too small or they're like, you know, the legs are sticking out. It's like, 
it takes like and it's usually a significant amount before you think oh yeah I've, I've noticed that now right right so what we do is we actually use a few different like markers of where they are in their growth so one of those is going to be the riser sign that's looking at the growth plate on top of their hips yeah um, another is their triradiate cartilage which is a little bit lower in the hips, um, that tends to close when they're going through their peak height velocity. So when they're growing the most rapidly. And so typically for girls, we'll see that triradiate cartilage start to close. Then somewhere around where the riser sign starts to pop up. So when they go from riser zero to riser one, a lot of times they'll start to hit menses right around there too. And what we find is that with girls, typically they stop growing about two, two and a half years after their first menses. And so that, of course, is a statistic and each patient is different. But using all of those factors kind of together can help us determine where they are in their growth. Oh, I, so then are you, do you have to wait for the x-ray from the orthopedic doctor or are you able to send, send them for x-rays yourself? So the orthopedic is the one who has to actually write the prescription for the x-rays. Yep. Okay. If I'm seeing a patient and say they're not due for like another three months for an out-of-brace x-ray, but something mm -hmm. looks a little bit off to me, then I will reach out to the orthopedic, orthopedic and ask them if they would be willing to write the prescription. Normally they are, I would say, yeah. but they're the ones who are, who are writing the prescription. Okay. And then, so and that gives us a fairly good, basics on what, what is scoliosis. I know because I, I think I sent you like 10 questions and I've asked about 25 already. So oh, that's okay. <laughs> I, I it. sometimes just I just start asking as it comes into my head. Um, so in terms of like the methods of treatment, um, what what are the, the treatment options for these patients in terms of, I guess, if, like you, you mentioned briefly earlier about either bracing or, or surgery, but um, what do you take? So taking at that level, bracing, surgery, or do some people leave it untreated because they, they, they don't want to go into a brace or how, what do you tend to find? Oh, good question. So I would say like the three most common treatments are going to be physical therapy. And there's a specific type of physical therapy for scoliosis. The most common one that we see here in the U.S. is called Schroth physical therapy. But there are other types over in Europe that are a little bit more common over there. So mm -hmm. that's one. And then we have bracing, which, oh, I'm sure we'll go into this at some point. But there are so many different brace types. Yeah, and, that's next. Yeah, lots <laughs> that's of different next. brace types there. Yeah. And then there's surgery and there's kind of two main types of surgery. There's your spinal fusion, which has been around for ages at this point. And then there's also vertebral body tethering, which has come along. Oh, I'm not sure when they first started doing it, but it's definitely gained some popularity over the last five or 10 years. And that is actually not a fusion. So they go in and freeze one side of the growth plate that's overgrowing on the vertebral bodies and basically use the patient's remaining growth to help straighten out the spine. It's a newer technique and only certain patients are candidates for that. But those are kind of the two main surgical options there. To answer your question about, are there some patients who don't want a yeah. brace? Yes. I mean, there are some that I think just choose to see how it goes. And then ultimately, if they end up needing surgery, then they end up needing surgery. But that kind of starts to go into the, I think, like the emotional side of scoliosis yeah. and embracing. It can be challenging to wear a brace to school. And so yeah. That's I think some I was... kids 
yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just make some families, I should say, make that decision that that's just not a treatment option that they want to try. Because it's, uh, it's a hard uh, population of people to try and win round in terms of like to like if, if you say, like, say seven and one of, of its females and um, and then you then you're asking uh, at puberty to be like, by the way, you know, uh, can you wear a brace for 18 hours a day? Is it? <laughs> yeah, it's like that's 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 yeah, I cannot just like stand by the really challenges there. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, it's super hard. And is it, would it be right in saying that, like, sometimes you'll get the combination, or you will have a combination of physiotherapy and racing together? Is that, is that? Yes, definitely. So I specialize in the Wood Chanel Rigaud WCR brace, mm -hmm. which if you've heard of Rigaud Chanel designs, those are more common over there in Europe, too. Uh, so it's one of the, like, U.S. versions of a Rigaud Chanel design. And so that goes really nicely with the Shroff physical therapy. So I always tell my patients that, what I'm trying to do biomechanically with my brace mm -hmm. is what your shroud therapist is going to teach you how to do with your own muscles. Okay. So there's nothing while they're growing that can replace the efficacy of the brace. But what I find to be super helpful is that when they are actually coming out of their brace, then that is when the shroud therapy really can kick in okay. because then their muscles have to take back over. They can't really rely on just their brace throughout the day for support. Their muscles really need to kick back in and their muscles are going to teach them how to move best with their curve and with their body. And that will just help them kind of going forward through the aging process that is never nice to any of us. So I find that that's really important. And <laughs> I'm saying there's a, you've gone into darkness there. <laughs> <laughs> going, I know lights my back. lights time out after so long <laughs> if it doesn't detect movement. So we might have to stand up and sit down every once in a while. That's fine. That's fine. We were looking at the audio ones, so you'll be fine. Nobody will wonder what you did. Um, and in terms of then, like, what what would your kind of decision making be? Why you prefer that method of bracing over the other options that are available? Yeah, so that's a great question. So it was actually during my residency that I got trained in this brace design, in WCR bracing. And it really just completely changed how I think about scoliosis, how I approach it. And I think your more traditional methods that are out there more or less are like a cylinder and then we're adding padding in there to push against the apex of the curve. But like we talked about already, scoliosis is so much more than just the lateral curvature of the spine. Yeah. It's all of these different components too. So really, you know, customizing these braces so much further to target that derotation, to really get them into a better postural alignment that's mm -hmm. going to set them up for success as they go into adulthood. So really just taking into account all of the different characteristics of the curve and customizing the brace for that exact patient. Then, in terms of the traditional bracing, focuses more on just lateral, and then the WRC style that you use. What is that? Does that focus more on on all planes? Is that why it's kind of? Um, yes. Yes. Okay. So we're really yeah. trying to get triplanar control. So I always say that there's like four principles of Rigoshino bracing, and I like to explain them kind of as the the legs of a chair. So we're trying to create a stable chair. So the four legs are going to be derotation of the spine, elongation, three-point pressure systems, which all orthotists are very familiar with our three-point pressure systems, and then postural alignment. And so basically what we try to do is equally balance all of those principles. If we 
say push too hard against the curve, we are overemphasizing those three-point pressure systems. And then that leg of the chair is going to be longer and it's not going to be a very safe chair to sit in. So I think like patients have really grasped that analogy and they're like, oh, okay, this makes sense. We really need to balance all of these different principles in order to stabilize the spine because that's ultimately what we're trying to do. That probably, that explanation was, I like that. It was really, really clever. And I think that leads us into the the, the T1 tilt uh, assessment is, mm -hmm. that you have written about. Um, and I think we'll try and get the, the link for that, that, uh, that you wrote a really nice article uh, about what T1 tilt is. And that's why I thought I'd ask the question so that I could share that um, information with everybody else. Um, if you want to just kind of explain how what you've just said leads nicely into how you can decide whether you're um is it your whether you're correcting enough or not enough and you how you can kind of judge that yeah absolutely so that is something that we have kind of started looking at in the last few years in our in-brace x-rays so when we say t1 tilt what we're talking about is is t1 tilting towards it's gonna get a little confusing here towards the convexity of the thoracic curve so say we have like your classic right thoracic left lumbar curve. When you're looking at their original x-ray, so they're not wearing their brace, if T1 is nice and level, when they're in the brace, we don't want to kind of crank it over so that it's now tilted towards the right, towards the convexity of that right thoracic curve. And so what we find is that sometimes you can actually push too hard against these curves. And I think that's something that's, kind of counterintuitive for us as orthotists because we really love our three-point pressure systems and we want to push pretty much as hard as the patient can tolerate. But sometimes the patient's spine only has so much flexibility. And if you are pushing too hard against that right thoracic curve, you know, it has to kind of move somewhere if you're maxing it out. And so Unfortunately for us, it doesn't like to move down. It has a tendency to move up. And so you can start to create these upper thoracic curves potentially. And so that's something that we've kind of started really looking at in our in-brace x-rays to make sure that we are pushing the right amount. Yeah, and I think that's, that's, that's a very clever way to do it because that came from a check that was at the, that the orthopedics were doing um, and, and you were able to apply it to, uh, to, to bracing. Yeah, so I think they've actually been looking at it for a while, especially in terms of like surgical outcomes and things of that nature. And so kind of pulling from what they're already looking at and uh, applying it to what we're doing seems to be like one piece of the bigger puzzle. But I think it's a really important piece. And I think what your article is really nice because there's a couple of examples in there with images, which obviously leads itself to when I read it, I was, I was able to look at the images and say, okay, I can, I understand what you mean there. Uh, so we, I just get that, get that link and we'll, we'll stick it in the comments bit on, on the podcast. Um, I guess then what, what is successful treatment in, in idiopathic scoliosis? Oh, isn't that a heated topic? Oh man. So I think what I always tell patients and families is that ultimately our goal is to prevent the curve from getting any larger out of brace. So if I start seeing them at 35 degrees, I want to keep them at 35 degrees by the time they get done growing. I think other people might define success as not needing surgery. 
So keeping that curve under say that 45 or 50 degree range. Um, but to me, I wanna keep it as small as we possibly can. Mm -hmm. So what we found in the literature is that curves over 50 degrees, those naturally have a big tendency to keep progressing over the lifetime, which is why we start talking about surgery at that 50 degree mark. And over the years, I would say it's even come down to 45, some are even saying 40 at this point. The 30 to 50 degree range, that's kind of more of a gray area. So what we find is some of those curves may progress, but they're not going to progress quite as rapidly as those curves over 50 degrees. But then the curves that stay under 30 degrees, those tend to stay stable over the lifetime. So right. if you would ask me what my ultimate goal would be, I would love to keep these curves under 30 degrees. So I personally try to do everything that I can to keep them as close to that range as I possibly can. So it's it's always a fine line and it's a discussion that I have with some of my referrals. Because sometimes orthopedists will see the curve go from 35 to 28 degrees and then tell the patients that they only need to wear their braces at night. But then we might see it kind of start to creep back up. And so if I can keep it under 30, then I would be so, so happy. <laughs> and, and, and how long do you, like, when they, when they finish growing, do you monitor them at all after that period to see? Because, I mean, if you're thinking, like, they wear it when puberty and adolescence, like, so if they're wearing that brace for how many, how long would, is it until they finish growing that they stay in brace? Or is it, um, and then how long do you monitor after before you say, okay, I think we're good? Yeah, so that's a great question. So they do wear their brace essentially until they stop growing. So like we talked about earlier with those growth markers, so normally around reserve four, four or five, and then they'll also check a hand x-ray because we find that the growth plates in the hand tend to be a little bit more accurate. So if all of that checks out, their height hasn't changed in a few months, then we can pretty safely say that they're done growing. But we still do a weaning process because like I talked about earlier, if you quit cold turkey wearing your brace, you're going to be super, super <laughs> sore. And so we have to kind of gradually wean them out of their brace. I think most experts agree that it's best to do it for at least six months. Some will do yeah. it a little bit longer, actually. Um, so normally what I cut out first is wearing the brace to school. So they'll do three months of just wearing it after school and at night. I'll see them back three months later. If all still looks good, they haven't grown, then we'll just do nighttime. If their curve is under 30 degrees, I'll do about three months. If it's over, then I will do about six months of nighttime bracing before they come out of their brace altogether. But you actually bring up a good point. I'm actually hoping to look into like what actually happens with their curve after they come out of their brace altogether. Because yeah. a lot of times they don't send us any x-rays yeah. after they stop wearing their brace, which makes sense but that's the information that that i really want to get my hands on and kind of get a better feel for for what's happening because the next next thought i'd have then is like when you say like okay we keep that curve at 30 degrees or under 30 degrees so they don't need surgery 30 degrees to me so still sounds like a significant number does that typically lead to any other musculoskeletal problems later that, you, that are common to see or is there anything you know of? Uh, and this is a this is a left field because you didn't know this question was coming. <laughs> but uh, so I'm thinking, like, you know, does is there anything that's common with that that you you see further down the line, or is that kind of what you're alluding to? Um, 
I'm trying to think. I mean, I don't know of anything definitive out there in terms of pain. There's a slight increased risk for lower back pain in people who have scoliosis, scoliosis versus those who do not, but it's not guaranteed. And a lot of times you would think that these bigger curves would actually have more pain, but that's not actually what we see. A lot of times it's not associated with the actual size of the curve and the presence of pain. There's not as direct of a correlation there as, as you would think. And so I would say pain is just something to look out for, but in some of my adult patients who come back, you know, menopause is not friendly to anyone. And in terms of bone health, it definitely takes a beating on us. And so some patients will come back to me in their 60s, 70s. I even have a few patients in their 80s whose curves have kind of progressed on them a little okay. bit. And so my my first recommendation there is actually to do physical therapy to see if they can get control of it with their muscles. Cause more than likely they have some weakness going on too. So if we can strengthen them there, then I find that that's really helpful. And then I, I think in another thing, so I was thinking, is there any like, do you see leg length discrepancy as a kind of left, like an apparent leg length discrepancy, like being a leftover kind of marker or do you tend to not, it's not something that's obvious that this might be a silly question. It's just what I'm thinking. Yeah, no, that's not, not a silly question whatsoever. So I would say leg length discrepancies that we see that are under about a quarter of an inch we don't tend to address because mm -hmm. sometimes they'll work themselves out a little bit or it's just so small that we don't think it's gonna significantly change things so much but if it's over that over a centimeter then we will actually fit them with a lift to try and get them a little bit more balanced there so if they have a bigger leg length discrepancy then we will address it and that will be something long term but if it's small, then then we just kind of let them be. I think it's always throws a question up because essentially the leg length is apparent instead of true. So it's like, do you treat it or do you not? And I, I personally right. tend to be like, if the patients come to me and said, I feel like I've got a leg length discrepancy and I think, well, there's no real reason for you to have the, something that's significant, say like over that quarter of an inch, then I'd be like, okay, well, we can try something. And if you find it more comfortable then we will roll with it but then it's you know kind of mainly based on kind of okay it looks it's about this but it's definitely apparent um is is that is that how would you look at it differently or is that similar to what you would see i would say we look at it a little bit differently just because no. the, the iliac crest can be super misleading with scoliosis because you can definitely have pe pelvic obliquity without actually having a leg length discrepancy. And so what I like to do is look at the head of the femur. And so these x-rays are going to be weight bearing. And so I find that looking at that gives me a better idea about the true leg length discrepancy. Okay. And so I would say that's really when I'm only treating leg length discrepancies, okay. if it's true. That's, that's cool. So that's, that you a, get access to that. And it's nice. It's a nice angle to think that, yeah, because you know, these patients like are not, it's not like a, a a bone difference because it's perhaps more rotational and like it's more complex than just looking at the iliac crests. Exactly. And again, another luxury of scoliosis is we do have access to those x-rays a lot of times. So it's very helpful. And and then when, when surgery comes into play, um, I, I think I've got, I, I wrote as a question, like we need to, I like to ask your kind of your thoughts on surgery. Like obviously there's a number that happens like, um, is it does it ever have a negative effect on you? Is it a negative effect on the patient, or how does how does 
how does it all kind of work for you in terms of treatment when you say, okay, you've got to, you've got to have surgery? Yeah, so I would say, thankfully, I do not have to have many of those discussions because the orthopedic is more of the one driving those okay. talks. Uh, but it, I, I do have my patients who say their curve got detected at 45 or 50 degrees, so already really at that surgical magnitude, but they're just not mentally prepared to go down that road yet. And so I have braced some of these bigger curves and then ultimately they have needed surgery, but I think doing so gives them a little bit more time to come to terms with it. Uh, honestly, I'm more on the front end of the surgery side of yeah. things and not really on the back end. So I can't comment too much about it's what I see in terms of, yeah, the patients coming back to see me, but what, what I always like to tell patients and conversations that I've had with orthopedists as well is like, there's not necessarily a right time to do it. Like a lot of patients mm -hmm. feel like they have to have the surgery right now and their child might only be 12 or 13. But in reality, as long as we can keep the curve in check and we don't let it keep going too crazy on us then they can wait until they're 15 or 16 or 17 when the family is ready, when everyone is ready to make this very big decision to go ahead and move forward with surgery. Cool. Um, and then I think uh, before we move on to my next kind of topic, uh, I I think it, it kind of seems like without you need to have a very good, like or an organized team of people who are sometimes in different places and good communication links and I think obviously like when you're in that setting where you're predominantly treating it, I guess that maybe you're always thinking it's always a forefront of your mind. And I think that seems like that that is a, one of the best ways to set up the treatment of uh of, of idiopathic scoliosis to make sure you're you can keep on top of it and that it you get good outcomes. Like or, or yeah, you can try and keep ahead of ahead of the curve. Hey, good, good fun. <laughs> Sorry, that was terrible. I need to edit that. That was bad. I thought, should I say this? And it just happened. Um, but but that 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 does seem essential. And like broken like systems are slow can can probably be quite detrimental to to outcomes. Oh, definitely. Yeah, having a good team around you is, I think, so especially important with scoliosis because we are dealing with something that is very time sensitive, and so. There are a few doctors that I work with, like shout out to Dr. Borden, who if I need anything, I won't just send him a text and he'll send me x-rays or whatever the case may be. Like we'll get everything going right away. And just having that great working relationship yeah. is not only helpful for me and for him, but for the patients too, because we're yeah. able to just like efficiently move through this process. Yeah. And so yeah, having that team is is great. And what the other topic I want to talk about is the I'm going to have to try and say it again now. Um, uh, is the other project that you've got, which is a kind of passion of obviously scoliosis is a passion of yours, but you have a um what what would I call it a scoliosis? What you tell us what it is? Scoliosis. Is that right? I got it. That's yes, that fella, yeah. you're saying it right. Yes. Scoliosis. Yeah. Tell us about that. So to give you some background, so I actually started Scolios Us back in 2016. It was my master's research project when I was going through Baylor. And it kind of all goes back to that first 
PowerPoint that we had about scoliosis, where we talked about, you know, wearing the brace for 23 hours and then we moved on. And so that kind of led me to go down this whole rabbit hole of what resources are available to patients and not only to patients, but also to the healthcare providers treating them. Because I think it's really hard to start conversations about the emotional side of bracing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, historically here in the U.S., O&P has been dominated by males. And so now we're starting to see like a big change with more females coming into the profession. But having a male practitioner paired with a 13-year-old female patient, it's a really hard dynamic to kind of navigate. And so I felt like you know, the resources were lacking, not just on the patient side of things, but especially on the healthcare provider side of things. Like there wasn't a resource that healthcare providers could provide to their patients that they knew would get the job done for whatever that patient is looking for. So that's basically how Scolios Us was born. It's a scoliosis support website. It has changed a lot over the years, but basically we have compiled all of the scoliosis resources that we can possibly find into one place on the website. So we have a resources page with all of those different resources. And then we also have a blog page. Um, oh, there's so many different pages on the website. I would say one of the other big things that we do is we run a mentor program where we actually connect kids one-on-one -on -one with a mentor who knows exactly what what they're going through, whether it be bracing or the surgery side of things. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's a fun, creative outlet, and I, I think it's serving a good purpose. What's the website address? It's bracingforscoliosus.org. <laughs> Brilliant. And now I'll try and I'll try and get that in the link as well. Uh, the URL. Perfect. And uh, no, I, that was amazing. Thank you. Uh, I think you're clearly very very knowledgeable uh on, on scoliosis and then your answers were clear and for me I've, I've learned in 45 minutes 50 minutes i've learned an awful lot um and yeah it i it still frightens me a little bit because it's so complex and it's so such a big involvement for for these patients but to see how well your your system and your the way you're working is is and all the other elements that you are adding to to scoliosis treatment it's it's, it's really fantastic so i urge everyone to have a read of your article uh, and if you've got anything else, other articles that you want to share then if you send them I'll, I'll put them on the link to the podcast just the one for now but there are definitely a bunch of articles on the scolios us website that yeah. are kind of like setting up your office and all kinds of different things oh wicked so fantastic megan thank you so much for coming on and being, being a guest uh, it was an absolute pleasure to to have you yeah thank you for having me this has been so great